We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. Dear Lord, uh, I just pray that you would, um, yeah, that you would be with us during this time. I pray that you um, would just kind of richen and enlighten these words that I have prepared, that they would uh, be a blessing to everyone here. Um, yeah, I pray that you would increase, that I might decrease. I pray that just in terms of like physical health, that I would be able to get through this without coughing a whole lot, just because I don't want to distract or disrupt the flow. Um, and yeah, I pray that you prepare everyone's hearts to hear this, whether in person or online. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. All righty, team. So um, Caleb just read to us again from Galatians, uh, the end of chapter two. And as we mentioned before, we are um, going through this series on Galatians. And so many of you who have heard uh, some of our other sermons are, are pretty familiar at this point with the theme, the running theme of this book. Uh, but just as a review, um, the book of Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to this church here in Galatia. And there are some people known as Judaizers who have kind of infiltrated this church and started sharing a lot of unhealthy teachings, basically saying that, you know, if you're going to be a real Jesus follower, if you're going to be a real Christ follower, then you have to follow all of the commandments of the law that God gave to the Israelites in the Old Testament, specifically in this case. And what Paul talks about a lot is circumcision. Um, Paul tells them that they're uh, being dumb because, well, they, they kind of are. Uh, but he does this by breaking down the significance of who Jesus was and what Jesus' relationship was with the law. Um, so the law is a term that you've probably seen a lot throughout this. And maybe, I mean, the law is kind of a big deal in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So maybe you've read this a bunch of times and you're not quite sure what it means. So we're going to go through what the law is. I'm going to try and have like a big, like kind of wide definition of it. And then I'm going to try and like narrow the scope a little bit before we jump into the points of this passage here. So um, the law, what is it? Um, it's probably the most important thing that we're going to talk about because I think a lot of us still struggle to understand what the law is. I remember uh, probably like the first year that I was a Christian, I did this Bible study for a church I was going to where they just like gave me a commentary and were like, all right, read Romans and then answer these questions. 
And I typed out all these responses and the like they all the questions had to do with the law. And I thought the law was like the American law, like, you know, uh, traffic tickets and stuff like that. So I answered everything wrong. And they just told me, yeah, this is wrong. But they didn't tell me why. And then I left the Bible study and it was like kind of kind of bad. And so I think it's very important for us to have like a comprehensive understanding of what this biblical concept is. So. Here's the longer definition. Um, the, the, the law is the list of moral, civil, and ceremonial commandments and principles that God gave to the Israelites to structure their society around. And so, you know, some of these laws were, were kind of universal to morality, and some of them were more circumstantial or specific to the time that the Israelites were living in. So imagine you were like a little kid visiting your, like, maybe visiting your friend's house for the first time. There's going to be certain rules that you're going to follow that you would follow in everyone's house. Like, you know, don't hit people and don't steal stuff, like basic rules of morality. But there may also be more like uh conditional rules that you would follow in this person's house like you know we have a really delicate carpet so you have to take your shoes off and leave it at the front door or we have a puppy that can't go outside so please don't leave the back door open so some of these things were like conditional to them but some of them were like kind of overlapping like overarching rules most of us when we think of uh, the law, probably think of like the Ten Commandments, which were the moral laws, things like don't murder, don't envy, stuff like that. And then the ceremonial and the civil laws tended to include things that were much more specific to the lives of the Israelites in terms of politics or culture. This is where you'll find rules like circumcision, for example, animal sacrifice, which was a really big deal back then, um, and like what punishments were acceptable for certain crimes. Um, so if all of that, I would, if I had to summarize the law, I would say the law is God's intended design for human and Israelite in parentheses life in a world full of sin. Again, the law is God's intended design for human and Israelite life in a world full of sin. And so I've got three points that I want to say about the law, specifically in the context of this passage. And the first one, follow, follow, follow through with me to, to all of them, because, you know, the first one might be a little might be a little spicy. But the first one, the law is great. The law is actually good. And, you know, asterisk. So don't run away with it just yet. But the law is actually good. Um, and in Psalm 119, which is the longest Psalm and the longest chapter in the entire Bible, David just talks about how much he loves the word of God, the command of God, and specifically the law of God. In the first two verses, he says, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with his, with the whole heart. Um, the law is God's design for what redemption could look like. And, and here's the thing that's interesting is that within the last couple hundred years, it seems like Western society has kind of gotten morality down a little bit. Well, I'd say substantially because you have to think in, in time, in, in most of human history, a lot of the, the, the big societal sins that we consider like 
horribly depraved today were very, very commonplace. So things like widespread man-stealing slash slavery, just like these violent warrior cultures, um, systemic, like widespread oppression of minority groups and women specifically, just like all of these things were very, very common back in the day. And so when we see God's law and it speaks of ways that we're supposed to treat people and ways that we're supposed to act and ways that we're supposed to engage with the poor, ways that we're supposed to uh, engage with the foreigner, ways that we're supposed to, you know, not take things that don't belong to us. It's actually really liberating to know that we're seeing a reflection of God's goodness and God's design for his image bearers that is actually a positive thing. So when you think about it, in terms of the morality that a lot of human beings got to inherit just because of the really horrible time period they were born in, the law actually reflected something really, really good, which was that God cared about humanity. Um, and it showed that he cared about preserving the integrity of the humans that he created. So that's my first point. The law is actually good. Um, and here's my second point, which is going to sound like the exact opposite. The law is terrible. <laughs> the law is terrible. Parentheses at saving us. The law is terrible. Parentheses at saving us. Here's the thing. I think that some people have this viewpoint that like the law, like the Ten Commandments, like obedience to that was supposed to save people in the Old Testament. And now in the New Testament, there's this new faith thing that you're supposed to like wrap your mind around. That's not true. Like the law was never, ever supposed to actually save people. It was never intended to do that. It was only intended to represent this design for what a better human world could look like, but it was never intended to actually save, and it's broken at doing so. I look at the law like almond milk. I love almond milk, but I'm never going to put it in my gas tank because that doesn't make any sense. To misuse a good thing doesn't suddenly make it a bad thing, but it also doesn't mean that it's going to have universal utility to fulfill these things. The law is good, but it's horrible, horrible at saving us. Um, if we look at Psalm 51, Psalm 51, which was written by David, again, um, it's kind of David in a very different place. Uh, many of you guys who know the background, and I won't go into a ton of this story, know that before writing Psalm 51, David had just gotten confronted for uh, basically sleep, have, having uh, committing adultery and killing uh, his the the woman's wife that he was cheating with. Oh my gosh, no, he. He, he slept with Bathsheba, who he saw bathing weirdly, and then he killed her husband so that um, because he got her pregnant. I said I wasn't going to spend a lot of time on it, but then I messed up the story. So my bad. Um, so David was pretty chill, but what he did for a while, and then he got confronted and then had to be, you know, had to realize that like, oh, shoot, I actually have to confess to God for these lousy things that I did. And so in Psalm 51, this is him praying to God for forgiveness. And if you'll notice, he doesn't mention that the law will save him in this passage because he knows that it won't. He says, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, according to your many mercies, God, can you blot out my transgression? God, can you forgive me because you're merciful and can you forgive me because you love me like he's appealing to who god is because he knows that the law that he just broke is incapable of saving him 
the law for everything it is reflecting that is good is completely broken when it comes to forgiveness, which is the main flaw that it has. So the law is good in, in that it is a good thing. It was created to be a good thing, but it's terrible, terrible, terrible at saving us. And it was never intended to. Now you might be saying, well, wait a second there, John. You said that there were different types of laws in the Old Testament. So if in Galatians, they're talking about circumcision, which was a ceremonial law, then maybe you can be saved by doing a good work, which is a moral law. And to that, I would say, wow, a plus for listening. That was a minute detail that you caught on to. However, the problem is that's still really, really missing the boat. And I'm going to turn you to uh, Ephesians chapter two for, for a little bit more clarity there. Ephesians chapter two, please. So, and, and really like even historically, this view of salvation or justification by faith, like it, it, it really does find a lot of its root in this passage from Ephesians 2 that I'm going to read, which is Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast for our, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now, like I said, this is like the cornerstone belief of what makes us Bible believing Christians or what makes us Christians at all. It is this idea that regardless of what facet of the law we're trying to conform to, whether it's circumcision or just doing something because we believe that our faith depends on it, because our, our life with God depends on it, that is completely wrong and it's anti to the gospel. This is saying right here that salvation is a gift that God has given us and we receive it through the faith that we have by trusting in him. We think back to like old dudes in the Old Testament. When God created Adam and Eve, he didn't say, all right, guys, here's your checklist. If you don't do this, I'm kicking you out of here. All he said was, hey, trust me. Trust me enough to believe that the fruit I'm telling you is dangerous, is dangerous. And through that trust, you will have life. But if you decide that I'm that that I as God, as your creator, I'm just somehow disconnected or wrong, that then you will you will have to be cast out of this garden. And so it's always about the trust and the faith that God was desiring. Um, never the never the law. And so what's my third point is that I, I've said the law is great. I've said the law is terrible um, at saving us. The third point is that the law is appealing, um, parentheses, to distort our gospel um, or to distort into our gospel. The law is appealing. I think of it like this. Like I, I think of uh, 
even like the American dream, like the way it's kind of presented. And I don't, I don't mean this to, to critique heavily either anyone like liberal, conservative, Democrat or Republican, but I think that the American dream that all of us are kind of fed is that like, if you just put enough work into something, you're just gonna get a lot out of it. Like if you just work really hard, you're just going to reap your rewards one day. Now, I mean, that as a social idea is, you know, is whatever. But when we try to apply that same thing to the gospel, then we get this like, well, I'm just going to keep doing my thing as a Christian and I'm going to keep, you know, trying to love people and trying to do my best. And maybe when I die, God will be like, nice job. You earned your way into my presence. Uh, And if I do a bad job, God will be like, hey, you dropped the ball. But hey, at least I was in control. And that's not the gospel. That is a very like American dream gospel and that it's very like workspace, but that's not the Christian gospel. I actually spoke to a friend of mine um, who told me like straight up, he was like, I don't know if I really like the idea of being saved by faith alone because that gives me no control. He's like, I'd rather have control over if I'd be saved or not based on like knowing that I earned it. I don't want to get something that I didn't earn. And I was like, wow, this guy's, this is a heresy. <laughs> like that's, that's problematic. Um, and I just thought as I was, as I was considering this, like, you know, this like rise and grind kind of gospel um, could really be appealing to someone who just feels like this fulfillment through accomplishment and whatnot. But I think of the guy who was a lifelong criminal, a thief, and was literally being crucified right next to the son of man as he was being crucified for crimes he didn't commit. That guy's got no opportunity to grind or to work or to earn his way to heaven. And yet just a couple words of faith and belief and Jesus turns to him and says I will see you today in paradise and that is a beautiful thing and it's very much not a works-based gospel the second thing oh man I feel weird about this one but we're gonna try we're gonna try to to wade into these muddy muddy waters you guys so hmm I'm looking at my notes and I'm like, mm, all right, we got to do this. Um, purity culture. What a big thing, right? Uh, I, I, I can imagine everyone when they hear the, the, the phrase purity culture probably has some kind of like recoil or even just like a generic response. And so uh, there's a whole lot to say about this. And so I, I, I want to be brief in like my background and then kind of just like, you know, just get the, get the knife yeah, uh, to the points, of course, not, not literally, but purity culture, if you're not aware, it was basically like, maybe you've never heard the term purity culture, but if you've heard of like purity rings or uh, father daughter dances or the idea of courting or Joshua Harris, like those are all like ideas that kind of descended from the purity culture. Um, and I'll say, and this again, may be unpopular. I will say that the purity culture was not completely misguided in what it did. The purity culture was coming up in an era where our American culture had decided to adapt a whole lot of like very new um, like approaches to sexual ethics, which I think we could say were objectively not Christian or biblical. And so instead of deciding to like really reinforce what healthy sexuality looks like, they decided to 
uh, create all of these like systems of like shame that were both equally harmful for men and women. And when we when we look at all of that, especially in the context of what happened earlier this week, where uh, a young Bible uh, reading, a church attending young man uh, in Atlanta actually murdered eight people um, because he said that he had a sex addiction and he uh, wanted to murder these people because he saw them as temptations that needed to be uh, eliminated. Like that, that does make us kind of think about how we've as a church have tackled issues of not just sex, but shame as a whole. And I do have to throw a bunch of disclaimers out there to talk about something that happened so recently. First is that this was super recent. We don't know what the impact of, let's say, a really severe mental illness could have been on this guy. Not that it takes away the horror and the evil of these crimes. Um, also, because six of his eight victims were Asian American women, it's, there's a very possible link to some kind of racial factor. Um, and third, I'm certainly not implying that purity culture or teaching against a worldly view of sex is pro-murder or violence. But here is what I can say is that it often produces an idea of shame that starts to turn into this gospel of shame. You have to conform to this certain approach of your own morality. And every time you violate that, God is kind of removing his grace and his love and his kindness for you. And that is very, very anti-gospel. A gospel of shame related to or not related to purity culture or purity in, in general is going to create a God who is like this carrot on a string savior who's always yanking his goodness away to those who disappoint him and fail to live up to his standards. And what this does is it creates this internal kind of self-loathing, self a perpetual problem who can't do anything right and can't earn the grace of a God who you thought was nice and turns out is not so much. But what I've also observed, especially in the context of this dude and from what he reportedly said, this type of shame like gospel doesn't just devour like its host, but kind of everyone around it. When you have this twisted gospel mentality, you don't just resent yourself as a failure, but you resent the others who don't meet up to your expectations or standards, especially when those failures lead to your own stumbling or failures. And this is where I can kind of bring in my own self as an example and not a, not a proud example either. But I certainly recall being a student in my early 20s, which makes me sound old. I'm only 28. But in my, uh, in my earlier days, I went to the University of Arizona and I had to walk around campus all the time. And, you know, it was weird. I was like this 18 through 21 dude who was... Uh, you know, really trying my best not to uh, look at porn and just do wrong sexual stuff. And I'm walking around this campus with all these young women who were dressed in my in my mind very immodestly. But I'm not looking at them and thinking, ah, oh, you know, these are these are vessels of God's goodness. These are these are uh, you know. What is it? These are these are people made in the image of God who are who are sinners who are acting out of that sin mentality. In my mind, I'm thinking they're they're messing with me. 
Like they're actively causing me to stumble and causing me to fail. And so I let this like resentment bubble up in my heart and praise God, I never got close to doing what this wacko did and grabbing a gun and trying to eliminate them. But I'm just saying, like, if I'm speaking honestly about myself and also if I'm just looking at what Jesus said correctly, when he said, if you hate someone in your heart, you might as well have murdered them as far as I'm concerned that he's Jesus. So as far as he's concerned, it's a big deal. If Jesus says that, and I'm holding resentment in my heart for people that I hate because they're causing me to stumble, but I hate them because they're making me into a person that I feel God hates. Like, are are we starting to understand how this gospel of shame is not just this internal problem, but it turns into a problem where you don't just hate yourself, but you hate the people around you. And that's not cool. In fact, that's something you need to repent for. And I can, I, I, I don't know the struggles of women enough to say, hey, this is where you have to apply this, but I can look at dudes and be like, you need to, you need to stop that. You need to stop that. That's why I wish I had told myself back in the day, hey, that's not cool, dude. Like, simple stuff. I think sometimes we even like romanticize this idea of being the broken, the broken suffering servant. Oh, I try so hard, but I fail. I fail the glory of God every day, but you know, I'm going to keep on trying. I'm going to keep on trying. That's not the gospel, dude. That's not, that's not. And we need to stop romanticizing that as a church. We need to stop romanticizing this idea that this person is so brokenly humble. No, there is humility and there is like actively rejecting the love of Christ. And I, I have experienced a long life of that. And trust me, like I said, I'm 28. It feels long. It feels like I've had a long life in this. And I'm trying to push against that every day. So let me say to, 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 the, to my self-loathing brothers and sisters, like you are not just being some fancy biblical prophetic version of humble. No, it's, it's actually rejecting the goodness of God. And what he has called you by changing you into a new creation. And we need to recognize that. And that's not to like pour more shame on. It's to say, man, like you're standing out in the rain and there's a, there's a Ramada right next to you. Like fight for that. Like there's better than that. Um, whew, a little bit off the notes there, but that's what happens. You bring in a personal story. So last point, um, which is actually not so much a point, but it's you guys asking me, so then what's your point, John? Are Christians just supposed to believe in God and then do whatever they want for the rest of their lives? Like we just have no standard for how we're supposed to live. We're just saved by faith and not by anything else. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. If we look back to Ephesians 2, It says, especially in uh, verses 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith and the not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. However, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're actually not saved by good works. We're saved for them. We're saved so that we can love and do good things and be good to other people and be good to God and bring good and beauty to this world that is so ravaged by sin. It's a blessing that we have this. One thing I love to point out about this verse, and I feel like I've mentioned the sermon in the past, but I don't know. 
um, is that workmanship, the, the Greek word for it, is actually the same word that we get poem from. So workmanship is cool. That sounds like kind of a, I don't know, I feel like it sounds like a, like a desk. But there's something like beautiful about like that God has created us in Christ Jesus like a poem. Like there's like there's like this intimacy between like an artist and a work of art that he creates. Like that's a true representation to who we are and that we're made for good things. And so just as our main passage says, we no longer live through the life of the law because we are dead to the law. The law that used to be this master that was only to show us how broken we were is now something that we can rest our feet on. The laws, the law and the good things that it represents are now things that we're privileged to do as God's children. And that rather than, um, I'm sorry, but that the focus of our salvation and the focus of our hope would never have to be placed on our own acts, whether they're some ceremonial acts or whether they're just doing everything right all the time. But that we could place our hope and our salvation fully, fully, fully on Jesus and really believe God when he says in this beautiful verse that we have been crucified with Christ, that it is no longer us who live. It is Christ who lives in us and the life which we now live in the flesh, we can live by faith in the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so why is this passage called, is Jesus a minister of sin? Well, it's because whenever we are pouring our works out as if it's like quarters in the vending machine of God's grace, then we are basically saying that Christ's death is not worth enough to, to have earned God's goodness. And we have to do all of that still ourselves, which is, again, not the gospel, not biblical, not true, not healthy, not good for you. And so, yeah, I would, I would encourage all of us to rest in that, to rest in just the, the slow, kind goodness of Christ, where he has actively saved us because he loves us, because he's called us to it, because he wants to. And he's loved us enough to push us in a direction of good works, but not the works that save, but the works that show that we are saved. And so now, um, before we go into our final, final <coughs> excuse me, little wing of service, um, we're going to pause briefly for our um, confession. So this, this portion of our service is essentially when we kind of just chill and um, we're going to spend a couple minutes in silence and we're going to um, just pray and kind of respond to God with uh, the things that have been stirred up by this, this message. Or even maybe just like you thought back and you were like, man, this week I was really unkind to my spouse and I need to confess that to the Lord and then confess it to them later. Like if that's something like, yeah, confess that. So let's, uh, let's spend some time in confession and, uh, and then we'll go into the last part of our service. Um, so I'll pray, and then we'll leave a couple minutes for you guys as well. Dear Father, thank you for this. Uh, thank you for this beautiful passage. It's such a beautiful passage, and I, I, I know. I, I mean, actually, I don't know. But when Paul was writing this 
2000 years ago, I don't think he was like, man, they're going to love this. Like, <laughs> But there is something just incredible about the intimacy of being crucified with you, but also like that you are our life, that you are um, like everything for us. You're our salvation. You are what moves us to love. And we love because we you first loved us. And these are just such wonderful, wonderful truths. And I pray that for those who are perpetually just in this state of breaking themselves over a law, that they are no longer obligated to serve. Um, I pray that they would find liberation in that. And I pray that those who have known no law nor faith who are just listening for whatever reason would see that there's something beautiful about who you are and what you're offering to us, um, that you are a good master to serve. You're better than we could be for ourselves. We know that for sure. So please bless us and please be there for us um, and help us to uh, explore our hearts to confess right now.